Welcome to John Glenn College of Public Affairs Policy Brief, webcast series of informed conversations with policymakers and influencers and public sector professionals. My name is Trevor Brown. I'm Dean of the Glenn College and proud to be your host. And I'm joined today by Wayne Turnage, all the way from the District of Columbia, where he serves as Deputy Mayor for the District of Columbia Health and Human Services and Director of the District of Columbia's Department of Healthcare Finance. Welcome, Wayne. How you doing? I'm doing fine. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Um, what what hat are you wearing today? You got lots of hats. Are we uh, are we deputy mayor or director? It depends on what minute of the day you you catch me. Uh, I I move uh, thanks to a very capable staff uh, that surrounds me. I move in and out of both roles uh, by the minute, actually. So. So before we jump in here to the, the meat of this, I want to do a little of the civics 101 here. So you are a deputy mayor, which, you know, mayoral positions we often think of as elected. So I assume this is an appointed position, but then a director we think of as sometimes as more of a civil service position. Just educate us a little bit. Are these both appointed positions or are there some distinction between the two? Yes, they, they both are uh, appointed positions. The deputy mayor serves in the cabinet uh, of the, um, in the executive office of the mayor, uh, along with uh, four or five other deputy mayors uh, that basically cover the functional areas of government. Uh, and uh, it is an appointed position, but also the director, agency directors are also considered to be in the mayor's cabinet and subject to her appointment. And so, uh, both positions are appointed. One is actually in the executive office of the mayor. The other one is in the broader cabinet. So did you, uh, did you draw the short straw or was this a, a, is this a typical pattern to marry these two positions together? I, I don't think it's uh, typical. I, um, uh, I was initially working as a director of the Department of Healthcare Finance, and I have been doing that since uh, 2011 when I came to Washington, D.C. to work for a former mayor, uh, Mayor Gray. Uh, once Mayor Bowser was elected, uh, she asked me to stay on uh, in the, as, the as the director of the Department of Healthcare Finance. And over time, she asked if I would consider the dual roles. I was very honored uh, that she would ask me. I was a little intimidated by the uh, prospect, but uh, feeling honored that she would ask me and always looking to help out wherever I can, uh, I, I agree to do both roles. Well, let me add my congratulations and condolences. Never uh -huh. one of these jobs, it's gotta be three times as hard to do two. So let's let's dive into the, the roles. Tell us a little okay. bit about um, the, the primary responsibilities and here we're setting up the, what, what was your office focused on before COVID hit, sort of January, okay. February, 2020? And who are the primary client population? <clears throat> and how do you serve them? Okay, well, let me start with the uh, deputy mayor's role. That has a sort of a higher gaze from where I sit. Um, the, the general mission of the deputy mayor's office of health and human services is to really coordinate in a, a really comprehensive um, set of benefits and services for uh, district residents who sort of live on the economic margin and those who uh, have uh, uh, some significant disabilities. Uh, we cover both children, uh, individual adults, uh, and families uh, with, the de with the desire to sort of step in the gap that exists in their lives to make sure 
that we can help them um, move beyond some of the challenges that they may have or live better with the challenges that they have. Uh, so we, in, in that context, there is a cluster of agencies that includes the agency we just talked about, the Department of Healthcare Finance, primarily funds uh, healthcare for persons who are uh, uh, low income. Uh, we cover 40% of the district's residents. There's the Department of Health, which is, as, as the Department of Health do across the country, they focus on providing population health care and also providing a full range of public health uh, protection services uh, to the residents of the district. We have our uh, Department of Human Services, which uh, uh, is responsible for the uh, execution of all of the uh, safety net programs. They cover food security, uh, cash assistance, and we provide an extensive set of services to persons who are experiencing homelessness. We also have an agency called the Disability Services Agency. They probably serve the most vulnerable uh, population in the city in terms of generally both income, but also they have some profound uh, disabilities that are both physical and intellectual. And uh, they, this agency has, does a wonderful job of providing uh, access to healthcare services and the supports that this population needs to uh, uh, live as comfortably as, as is possible given some of the challenges that they face. We also have the Department of Behavioral Health, which is responsible for all of the uh, mental health services that we deliver in the city, both in the community where they fund services and in institutions where they are the operator of the uh, state hospital. Uh, and finally, we have a, an agency on, on aging, uh, and they basically have a range of services that they provide to our seniors with the goal of uh, uh, helping our seniors improve their life uh, and helping them age friendly, as we call it. So you, you used the phrase of, of a few minutes ago that primarily you're serving vulnerable populations in the District of Columbia. Pre-COVID, what were the primary challenges that, that these vulnerable populations were, were facing? What were the yeah. things you were most concerned about trying to address for, and you could pick one or sort of describe a, a broad set of, of challenges? I think the, um, the biggest, probably one of the biggest challenges pre-COVID was the, the challenge of help, helping our vulnerable population negotiate you know, a very complex healthcare system. Under the best of circumstances, you know, uh, our healthcare system is pretty complicated. Uh, and uh, if you don't have the necessary supports and resources and information, it can be a very um, uh, daunting challenge to try to negotiate. Now the district has the benefit of being, I think the second, um, of ranking second in the country in, in, in terms of having the highest insured rate. So the problem has not been uh, making sure people have health insurance, which is a problem in many other states. Our problem is making sure that people have real access to care once they have the health insurance. And that challenge falls disproportionately on the residents who live in uh, uh, two wards of the city, primarily wards seven and eight, where they're low income, the uh, health care assets in those areas are significantly uh, uh, less uh, um, uh, fulsome than what you would find across the city. And as a result, um, you know, many of the residents have to find that they have to leave their wards to negotiate health care in other parts of the city. And as a result, some of them do not uh, constructively engage with the health care system, instead uh, using it as a, using the emergency room as their primary care doc and or waiting until they are really sick before they engage, which is really uh, never a good thing. That is one of the, um, probably the premier challenge that we had. 
And that cuts across all of these the vulnerable populations that, that I, uh, I mentioned. Uh, and we also are, are constantly um, working with our population on uh, uh, food security and cash assistance because the way those programs are structured at the federal level, uh, the, the more you earn, at some point you're going to reach a, a cliff in your benefits uh, and you're going to basically lose you know, all of your food stamps and, 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 and your cash assistance as well. So the district has for years worked to try to mitigate that cliff on, and they've done so on the, uh, the cash assistance side in some ways. But on the uh, food security side, we're still struggling with, and we were struggling with that problem before the pandemic, as to what we would do when people were making more money to disqualify them for food stamps, but not enough money given the cost of living in, in, in D.C. to live independently of, uh, uh, of the need for that program. So those are probably two of the biggest challenges we face. Um, and, and again, folded underneath the healthcare challenge are a range of difficulties that uh, we have with the mental health system and making sure people uh, uh, gain access to and benefit from the range of services that we provide. So it sounds like just an incredibly complex both set of challenges, but then the systems in place trying to coordinate across levels of government and various sort of sectors, healthcare, human services, homeless services, et cetera. There, there's a lot of knitting together, I'm sure, of all of this. So let's, let's pivot to, to COVID, uh, and then we'll come back to, to how it impacted these challenges. Okay. Soon in, in D.C. and in your office, did you realize that COVID was going to have an impact on the clients that you serve? And, and what were some of the initial indicators that, that you knew um, that this was, this was going to be a problem? Yeah, you know, it's very interesting. When we... Um when uh, the news began uh, to surface nationally that um, in January, late January, February, that there we, we were starting, the country was starting to see a small um, uh, but worrisome number of uh, persons who were infected with this thing that nobody really understood, at least from a, at a, at a lay person's level. Uh, we had not been, uh, at least there had been no reported cases in DC uh, really through uh, mid to late February, um, and we had, we didn't really see any in, in the first around the first couple of days of March. Now, but we were fully aware when we're looking at the national news and looking and looking at what other states were experiencing that it was coming. And so we were working with our uh, health department. Uh, our, it's called DC Health, and the uh, director of our health department, who is uh, uh, just fabulous at what she does, and trying to get our arms and hands around what this virus would mean for the district. And it was in that process that we got our first confirmed case, I think it was March 7th. Um, and then that sort of triggered a series of actions um, that um, would, we think would, uh, were instrumental in helping us sort of stay out in front of the virus as much as one possibly could. But prior to, because of our discussions with the health department and because of the mayor's proactive uh, uh, status on this, she uh, basically established a mayor's order, I think it was the last week in February, that said, I'm gonna build a, a consequence management team, much the way we do with other emergencies, that changes the reporting relationships in government, that elevates people who are on the ground, 
to have direct access with the mayor. Uh, and she surrounds herself with a team of uh, uh, experts in different functional areas of government. And we work to manage this uh, uh, process with her. Uh, and then shortly thereafter, she, she uh, uh, basically uh, triggered the opening of the uh, emergency operations center, which is also used, uh, it's activated when we have uh, uh, citywide emergencies. But then we got the first case and things got uh, uh, started moving pretty quickly. Uh, we, we, um, when we got the first case in March 7th, then the second week in March, uh, the mayor established a million dollar cash reserve fund. She said, basically, we need some dollars to be ready. And then from the, really from March 11th to the end of March, um, the, a number of activities were taken as our cases began, the number of reported cases began to increase. You know, we, she, she declared a public health emergency. Uh, there were uh, limits placed on the uh, number of people who could gather in a group. Uh, and then she triggered a, a, a citywide response plan that effectively closed out large convention center for business. Uh, she further restricted uh, size gatherings, all in the hope of uh, reducing the likelihood that we would have the kind of experience that uh, New York was at this point uh, struggling with. Uh, you know, in a, in a very difficult decision, we had to put distance learning in place in, in, in the schools, which is a challenge in the, in the city because the schools are more than just an educational resource for some of the kids because of the district's uh, poverty rate. You know, kids rely on the schools for a lot of things, including meals. And so that was a difficult uh, decision for the mayor to make. Um, and then when it was clear that the uh, virus was exploding in New York with these macabre-like uh, implications and, and, and the, the devastation that we were seeing, and our numbers continued to creep up, uh, the mayor decided to close, you know, all restaurants and, and bars. Um, the, she shut down all recreation sites, nightclubs, spas, um, um, uh, fitness clubs, and emphasized the need for social distancing and wearing masks when you were not able to social distance. And then this culminated at the end of March with uh, her deciding to issue a stay-at-home order. And, you know, those were the sort of broad things that were done and even at this time, it was not clear to me what this would mean for our, uh, 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 for the populations that we are responsible for. It was only when we started, we, we, when we saw the reports about the, uh, uh, the, the rapid spread of uh, COVID out west amongst uh, uh, congregate populations that we really became concerned that we would have to make some adjustments to how we were uh, sheltering people or providing care for people who were in congregate settings and then triggered a whole another set of activities. When you used an important word there that I want you to just explain, you said congregate settings. Uh -huh. what, what do you define that a little bit and explain and then start to talk more about, you know, Ward 8, Ward 9, what did this mean for those yes. populations? Well, it, it, congregate settings are, are places where uh, people live in, 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 in significant numbers. Sometimes in a dormitory style uh, setting uh, like we have in our shelters, but other times you have, you know, maybe two people in a room in a, in a nursing home or, 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 or a assisted living facility. And we begin to see reports and uh, really some of the reports that came out of, I think it was Washington State, where uh, significant numbers of uh, residents in one nursing home died. 
Um, and it was a rapid sort of, uh, the virus went through the facility in a, in a, at a rapid pace and killed people rather quickly. And it alarmed not only folks in DC, but everybody across the country. So we had to basically take a look with the assistance of the health department and CDC guidance, uh, how we needed to change the way we were, um, um, you know, either, either delivering services in congregate settings like shelters or paying for services in, in areas like nursing homes uh, and uh, assisted living facilities and even in hospitals. So th that was a, a probably the biggest initial adjustment that we had to make. Let's, let's focus on one of these. Take homeless shelters. Explain okay. that a little bit more. Tell us about the dynamics of how a homeless shelter would work in normal times and then how COVID impacted your ability to deliver services and then how you, how you responded. Just, just focusing okay. on homeless shelters. Absolutely. In, in, in the district, we have what we call uh, low barrier shelters. Uh, where pe anyone who is experiencing homelessness can present themselves for uh, shelter. And they can, you know, stay the night. Uh, typically, the shelter is closed during the day um, uh, and, and, and requires the uh, residents to, to go out um, and uh, work or um, uh, seek other services that they may need. Um, and so the typical, we have... Um, uh, in our low barrier shelters, we have shelters for uh, women, we have shelters for men, we have shelters that serve both men and women, uh, men and women. And what we do not have, um, no longer in the district, uh, the mayor closed all of the uh, family shelters. We did not, uh, the mayor was strong or adamant in her belief that you know shelters, regardless of how well run, were no place for children. So we have this sort of dichotomy of a, a family, short-term family housing, uh, for families, and we have low barrier shelters for uh, persons who are experiencing homelessness. And then on, um, outside of that system, uh, many folks who are experiencing homelessness uh, refuse to move into shelters, and they set up what they what we call encampments on the streets. Mm -hmm. And um, so the process for working with uh, residents who were living in encampments had to change as well. Uh, typically what happens with encampments, because the district has a, has a, a, a law that you cannot um, uh, permanently establish tents or other uh, abodes on public property. So um, at the same time, we have a, um, you know, a right to shelter uh, law in the district, and we try to encourage people who are living in encampments to move to shelters. But if they don't, then we have to make sure that there are no public or health hazards surrounding these encampments. And to do that, we conduct regular cleanups where we basically give them notice that we're coming. We give them a 14 day notice that we're coming to clean up the area that they should not be living in. And that cleanup, if they leave anything after the, when we arrive on the 14th day, if they leave anything that uh, um, um, uh, they decide to leave, then we will either dispose of it depending on its condition or if it's, uh, we believe it has some value, then we will store it. Uh, but the whole idea is to clean the area thoroughly. Uh, if we see an immediate hazard, we can establish what we call an immediate disposition. And we come back and we basically uh, uh, on, you know, once we say that this is an immediate hazard, we don't have to give a further notice. 
we come in and do a, 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 a thorough cleaning. But once we had uh, problems with COVID, uh, CDC came out with some guidelines that basically were designed to restrict the need for persons who were living in encampments to, to leave the encampment and move, move about in the city because you didn't want to expose them more than they already were exposed to the possibility of contracting the virus. So we had to basically, and also we, we had to be cognizant of the fact that uh, they did not have access to some of the uh, basic things you would need to slow the virus. They didn't have hand washing stations, you know, the, the, uh, the, uh, um, in many cases, there were no uh, porta johns. So we basically changed our policies. We stopped doing, uh, for the most part, uh, full cleanups. And we would go out and just uh, pick up around the area. We provided uh, uh, trash bags. We provided hand washing stations, uh, all in the effort to, uh, and we encouraged, you know, regular hygiene. Uh, and we continue to push with our, where we have these assessment teams, uh, we continue to try to push to encourage these members to move to shelters. The problem was in the shelters, we had to depopulate the shelters. Mm -hmm. uh, because we had uh, shelters set up in a way that you couldn't honor social distancing, we had to basically eliminate some of the beds in the shelter and uh, reduce the number of people who could therefore stay there. Uh, in the process of doing that, we set up temporary uh, shelter for people who were vulnerable uh, to COVID uh, based on risk factors or people who were uh, exposed to COVID or who were known to uh, or were determined to be positive. We put them up in, in, in hotels uh, until they would uh, uh, could either clear the virus from the standpoint of being in quarantine, quarantine, or if they were, uh, if they have a, you know, uh, a, a significant risk, then we would uh, leave them there until the, uh, uh, the goal is to try to leave them there until the uh, pandemic gets uh, somehow arrested. So none, none of these steps sound inexpensive. And uh, you, you, you are in charge of healthcare finance. Um, so you are both responsible for, on the one hand, in your deputy mayor role, the programmatic focus, but on your other role, you got to figure out how to pay for all this. Yes. And budgeting is an exercise in prioritization. Um, and I can't imagine that as a city, you were able to do everything that you would hope to do for these client populations. Talk a little bit here as we, we come towards the end of this conversation about how you prioritize the populations. Did you try to serve all of them equally, the ones that you mentioned at the beginning? Um, and similarly, how did you decide how to prioritize which services to get them given what I can't imagine were easy circumstances on the programmatic side and on the financing side. Yeah, well, the first thing we did was, because you're right, the budget pressures are enormous. I mean, they're absolutely enormous. And we were very fortunate, uh, like many uh, states that we, that the federal government has uh, began to, uh, uh, or did begin early on to outline how we could apply for some relief uh, so we moved forward rather aggressively on, on several levels. First, we decided to do a, a, a sort of a, uh, a, a full scan of the entire low-risk population that relied on us for health care. And we radically changed the rules that they could use to access care and, and to recertify for care. Uh, basically, we, uh, uh, working with our federal partner, we, we made it possible for people to uh, establish eligibility and maintain eligibility without meeting the uh, extensive document requirements. That put them in the healthcare system and it was and ensure they would have coverage uh, should they need to go to the doctor for any reasons, but certainly uh, because of uh, COVID. 
then we targeted the uh, persons who were at risk for, uh, you know, a, a significantly adverse outcome if they were to get infected. And this was the primarily the minority community in wards uh, 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 seven and eight. And we have a, 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 a heavy uh, Latinx population, I think it's in ward four. And we began to see what we saw nationally. We, see, we saw death, we saw infection rates and death rates were, that were extremely disproportionate to their representation in the population of the city. And so we, um, uh, through a contract, we, uh, we, we, we worked with a vendor to get out targeted messages to this population about how they could protect themselves as best they could, uh, as best as possible. And we encouraged them to uh, pursue all of the methods that would be necessary uh, to, to uh, uh, sort of uh, hopefully ward off this uh, uh, virus. The other thing we did was to um, use a lot of the city's resources and federal resources to supply our uh, uh, pro providers who were providing care to people who were in congregate settings or who were living at home with disabilities with as much of the, as much uh, public, uh, with, with, with as much PPE as we could fund. Uh, one of the biggest challenges, particularly in home care, a lot of the home care agencies did not have the resources to staff their workers with the appropriate protective equipment. And so we use city dollars to make sure that this population, the, the nursing homes, home care providers, had the necessary PPE to allow them to go into the homes of those who needed or provide care to those in the institutions to ensure that uh, uh, they were uh, uh, properly protected. It was a, um, it was not as smooth as, as, as I just described because there were always complaints and pushbacks from various providers and uh, um, that they didn't have enough PPE. So we were constantly working with uh, vendors who were providing PPE, building a, a PPE supply, and then trying to find ways to distribute it through the mayor's uh, incident uh, uh, management team that was put in place. So it was, uh, that's kind of where we focused a lot of our efforts. It sounds just like an amazing um, set of steps that you all had to take and, and deal with this crisis, which sadly is going to be around for a while. Talk now as we, we conclude, what, what do you see as the lasting impacts of COVID? And, and perhaps reflect a little bit on, has it, has it helped people understand the fragility of the healthcare system and the challenges that many of these vulnerable populations face? And hence, are you hopeful about changes we might make to the healthcare delivery system in the future? Or is this still we're in the thick of the crisis and can't quite yet see the, the, the what comes next phase? Um, for, forgive a complicated question, but curious to, to hear what you, you think about the future. I, you know, I'm very hopeful about the future. I think we have in the district, uh, one of the, um, you know, I hate to call it a benefit of COVID, but clearly one of the things that the district had stalled on was what to do about the healthcare challenges of the people in wards uh, seven and eight. And how do we deal with a situation where a populate a city as uh, awash in, in, in riches as, as, as Washington DC could continue to stomach um, a circumstance where the sickest residents in the city had no real access to anything but primary care, and that was on a very limited basis. How could we uh, 
justify um, continuing to operate a healthcare system that had a, a hospital that was uh, in an underserved area that was not viewed as being able to meet the needs of uh, the residents of, that, of, of those two wards. How could you continue to have a situation in those two wards where there was absolutely no specialty care? Um, and how do you particularly accept that when you look at the, the morbidity and now the mortality uh, uh, rates for their population, and they're two and three and four times, depending on the, the uh, disease you look at, the two and three and four times higher than what we see across the city. And I think the mayor put together um, a very comprehensive and you know, expensive and challenging set of proposals for the council to build a new hospital in Ward 8, to add two urgent care centers in Ward 8, to fund to build a outpatient clinic in, in Ward 8, an ambulatory clinic tied to the hospital in Ward 8. Um, and then also to uh, uh, make use our uh, tax abatement powers to provide Howard University, which trains more min minority doctors than any uh, medical school in the country and serves a key, uh, serves as a key provider of some of our at-risk population. How can we re help them remake their healthcare system, which uh, has faced some structural challenges over the years. And, you know, we had swung and missed a couple of times with the council on that proposal. Uh, but this time, uh, it went through with a unanimous vote uh, on on both the first and second vote uh, for uh, building a new healthcare system in Ward 7 and 8. And I think there, in no small part, the presence of COVID and the knowledge that it was disproportionately sickening and killing um, minorities and Latinos in um, uh, very, very high numbers uh, was something that uh, uh, greatly influenced our, uh, our legislators on the council. So I think that's, and that, that will, that will, that's decision, uh, the proposal by the mayor and then the decision to approve it by the council will echo through history uh, for those two wards. It will be, it will, it will radically change how healthcare is delivered for the people over the, the people in that ward who need it most. So that that's the one benefit I see. Well, <clears throat> that sounds like a truly profound benefit. So on, on that hopeful note, let's pull this to a close. Really, really appreciate you taking time out of your busy day to, to chat with, with us about the challenges DC is facing and we're really, we're really thinking good thoughts and, and hoping that both you can survive the, the short-term challenges, but also really build the healthcare infrastructure to serve those vulnerable populations. So thank you, Wayne, for the good work you're doing, and thanks for spending time with us today. It is my pleasure, and I really appreciate you having me. And uh, my only parting uh, request is see if you can put some pressure on the president so we can have some football this fall. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do my best. <laughs> Policy Brief is produced by the John Glenn College of Public Affairs at The Ohio State University. 